Hi, everybody, and welcome back to the Interlude Podcast. I'm your host, Dr. Eleanor Toplinski. I am a board-certified medical oncologist specializing in breast and gynecologic cancers, and I started this podcast as a way to share the journeys and experiences of women who are going through and have experienced cancer in some way. Today, I'm here with Megan Schweitzer, who is a breast cancer survivor, and she's going to start by sharing a little bit about her story. Welcome, Megan. Hi, thanks. Thanks so much for having me. So can you start by telling the listeners a little bit about who you are and sorry, who you are and what your life looked like before the breast cancer diagnosis? Yeah, absolutely. I think you had it right, uh, who I was. So um, before I uh, was diagnosed, uh, I was actually diagnosed while I, um, while I was pregnant. Um, my, um, husband and I were expecting our first child. I was 32 years old and about four or five months along, uh, maybe kind of when, then we find, found out the news. And how exactly did you find out the news? So tell me more about what that process, how did that happen? Did you feel a lump? Like what, what? Yeah, absolutely. So well, so I'll back up a little bit. I have some family history uh, with cancer and with breast cancer. My mom had breast cancer when she was 55 and ended up dying of um, lung cancer when she was 63. So I'd always been kind of keenly aware and, uh, you know, of the possibility. And when I was pregnant, you're noticing all these changes in your body. And I was noticing changes in my breasts, but then I noticed I had a dimple on the side of my breast, which is not a normal pregnancy change and is definitely has always been on the list of like things to look for. So I went to my regular appointment, which was like the following week because you know, you're going to the doctor all the time. Um, and I said to my obstetrician, Hey, this looks a little suspicious. Um, and he did not even blink twice. He's like, yeah, let's, let's go ahead and do an ultrasound. Uh, so I went that day, had an ultrasound done, um, and they did find a mass. I ended up actually having a mammogram done as well, um, even though that's not usually what you do when you're pregnant, but it was just important to know. Um, and ended up with uh, stage one um, ERPR positive, HER2 negative cancer. It obviously took a while to get all those different letters down and figure out what really was going on, but that ended up being the diagnosis. Was this your first pregnancy? Yes. So kind of how did you process the news? Because, you know, your first pregnancy, I mean, you're excited. You don't have any other children kind of running around and you're not, you know, you're savoring that experience. So how do you go from kind of blowing about pregnancy to a cancer diagnosis? You know, I, I was in the airport when I got the call that it was cancer and we went and got on a plane, my husband and I, like right afterwards. Mm-hmm. And we were on our way to my baby shower up wow. in Maryland, which is where my, uh, my husband's family is from. And we were in that plane for that three hours. And it was just like, I'm in this little tube flying through the sky and I'm gonna feel the feelings that I can feel right now. And then when I land, we're just going to start trying to figure it out. And honestly, I don't think I did a lot of processing until, you know, it was a slow process until now it's still continuing to happen i think myself and a lot of other survivors that i've talked to just you just kind of like you get on the 
on the bus and you go. You don't have a choice and you're not even thinking and you're just moving. And I don't really know how I, <laughs> how I got through that just one step at a time, I guess. And what happened after that? So you get told you have cancer and kind of what, how did it unravel? Breast cancer in a lot of cases and in my case was what they call ERPR positive, which is estrogen and progesterone positive. So my hormone body being pregnant, having this small tumor, which was about two centimeters, which is you know decent enough, but they did not want to leave that in me while I was going to continue with the pregnancy. So we decided, or the, the surgeons felt it was best to go ahead and do a lumpectomy while I was still pregnant. So at 32 weeks, um, I did that surgery, which was a very scary um, situation because as typically with surgery, you get to kind of, they give you some nice, uh, I don't know what it would be, probably a anti-anxiety or something Mm -hmm. as you're getting into the operating room, but they really wanted to keep me as alert as possible and, and minimize the risk to the baby. So I was awake all the way until the very, very, very last moment in that operating room. And, um, and it, it was just a really scary moment. They had a special nurse there to listen to the baby's heartbeat while I was under the whole time. They had an incubator off to the side just in case um, my body was going into some kind of early labor and they had to deliver my son early. They had like a team of nine people. I mean, it was like nuts, but um, I came out of surgery and I remember feeling my stomach when I first woke up and he was still there safe and sound and, and we got through it. Um, so uh, I was able to carry almost to term. We, we decided, uh, the doctor and I decided to induce at 37 weeks so I could continue with my treatment. And baby was born. Baby was born. Yes. Healthy, happy baby. He's the healthiest of all of us. So yes. And what happened after that? So um, he's my first child and we would like to have more children. Um, at this point in the story, we knew what kind of cancer I had, that it was pretty, um, like from a genetic perspective, not my genetics, but the genetic of that tumor, it was a very um, aggressive uh, type of cancer. So we were going to have, you know, chemo and that to look forward to, um, which was going to impact my fertility. So my husband and I decided to do a round of IVF um, to secure embryos. So we actually did that four weeks after I had my son, um, which was kind of incredible because the human body is not made to just crank out a bunch of eggs, you know, four weeks after delivering a baby. But I had a really great fertility specialist and um, also the Livestrong Foundation actually um, provided financial assistance um, for me to, to be able to preserve my fertility so that we can hopefully have children um, again in the future, whether it's with me or a surrogate. Um, and then I think five weeks after the baby was born, we, I started chemo. I did, um, five rounds of what we call TC chemo, which is taxotere cytoxin. And what happened? Were you, did you breastfeed at all or how was that process? Oh yeah. So when I had surgery, I asked the surgeon, you know, what do you think the situation is going to be? And I was surprised to find out that she really wasn't sure. She's like, it's a very complicated system of um, pathways. 
and exactly where I cut or exactly how it heals, it's just hard to say. Mm-hmm. So I have the baby. I tried to breastfeed, you know, right then and there in the hospital, um, which wasn't working so well, but that happens. And then a few days in, um, my cancer was in my left breast. My right breast is like ready to go and the left breast is ready to go and it wouldn't come out. Mm-hmm. And I, it was clogged, I guess. I like that. Like she said, the pathways, there was construction there that had not been completed. Mm-hmm. So, um, I ended up having to, as much as I, as I wasn't sure if this was going to work, but I had a really uh, great, um, friend who'd worked as a doula and she had me just basically starve that left breast and I was able to pump with just the right. And for those four weeks until I was um, starting chemo, I was able to pump mm-hmm. um, and give that to my baby. So that was good. But yeah, it was like, it, it was, it was, as with most things, it was a process and it was a little bit, you know, amended to, to make it work for us in those first few months there with the baby. And what was it like getting chemotherapy with a newborn? So there was a couple of choices, I guess, that like in retrospect, I look back and I maybe would have made a little bit differently. One of those is I chose not to get a port um, for my chemo because I, I wanted to be able to hold him in the way that I'd always pictured and burp him on my chest. And so I did not get a port. And I, uh, my, my doctor was like, you know, this specific drug you can take in the vein that it won't, you know, Mm -hmm. erode the vein, but it's not a great idea (laughs) um, because it's not a perfect system. Right. And so that was really tough. I had a couple of, um, I forget the word, but the IV infiltrations, um, where I ended up with some chemical burns and, and it was always a very stressful thing for me to get there and know that I had to get my IV. Mm -hmm. I also didn't want to look sick. I was very concerned that I was going to look sick walking around with this baby and I don't know. And then what, what would have been so bad about that? But for some reason, I, I just, I wanted that to be private to me. Mm -hmm. Um, at the time. And I really did not talk about what I was going through very much outside of my, my private circle. So I did the cold cap because I wanted to preserve my hair because to me it's like cancer bald. So I'm not going to do that. I'm going to do the cold cap. And I would not, in in retrospect, I probably would not have done that. I, I think that, that it was a really, really tough choice because I knew that there's pain either way, you know, losing your hair or the actual physical pain of going through the process of getting the, the, the cold cap. So, um, for, for any of your listeners that aren't too familiar, um, the cold cap is essentially, I used one from a company called Dignicap, but there's many different companies out there. And it's almost like there's a, uh, like a swim cap, like a latex swim cap, but there's fluid inside of it. So the fluid doesn't touch you directly, but it's connected by a hose to this machine that has freezing cold water. And so the freezing cold water or or fluid goes in and essentially freezes off your scalp so that the blood flow stops your scalp so that therefore the chemo can't kill those brain cells and you're able to keep your hair. The problem is that it's very painful. It's, It's the feeling of if you've ever had a piece of your body go numb in the ice of that of your entire scalp. 
um, and you have to get it numb first. So you sit there and get that whole process going, which takes like, I don't know how long, cause I don't remember truly, but maybe 30, 45 minutes, then your whole chemo routine. And then another 45 minutes for it to cool back down to room temperature so that you can go. So it elongated my routine and was very, very painful. And to top it all off, one time that it was put on me because they would have to really pull to get it on real tight because that's the whole thing. It needs to have perfect surface area, you know, touching all around. And it, it, it must have popped off right on the dome of my head. And I lost all the hair on the dome of my head. So I was able to still pass for not having, you know, not having lost my hair, I'd wear my hair in a ponytail. But as soon as I took my hair down, there was just nothing in the middle. So it was still a traumatic experience regardless. And, you know, it, it, I understand why I did it, but if I, if I were to go back, those two things were, were definitely tough um, decisions I made. Now, some, you know, one of the things we talk about with cold capping is that it's not just about the actual day. You can't really brush your hair. You have to use special shampoos. Can you talk about kind of the maintenance that happens with the cold cap aside from the day of actual infusion? Yeah, absolutely. Um, there, even though my hair was still there and the majority was still there, I would say like over 50%, um, it was very delicate and even running my fingers through my hair or, or combing it, I would comb it once a day just because I wanted to get whatever loose strands out, out, but it's, it's just brittle and not strong. Um, so it was kind of a constant, it was maintenance is a perfect word for it. And I only know that now cause I'm a, I'm a year out, I guess, from my first chemo and my quote unquote real hair is back and I feel the strength that's there. Um, I didn't color it. I didn't curl it. I didn't, you know, put any products in it. It's just a lot of, of rules and things not, I mean, and again, I, I, I feel lucky that I had moments. I, I stood up in my friend's wedding and I had my hair like that was awesome. Even though parts of it were being covered, my scalp that was bald under there, you know, everyone makes their choices and I totally get that, but it, it was not without its struggles. Were there other things during chemotherapy that were challenging or that weren't, that surprised you and how easy they were? I was very excited to hear, and I know that people had told me this, but for me, it was true that it is very patterned and it is very predictable. And that was something that was helpful to me. Someone told me when I first started, like your first time, your first um, round, you know, take notes. Okay. Day one, I feel like this day two, I feel like that. And the second time I went around and I, I looked at that journal and I did feel the same. And it was almost like I could, it was a weather forecast for me that I was able to know, Hey, this is how I might feel, um, you know, good or bad, but it, it did sometimes help to know there was something to kind of look forward to. Um, in terms of when I would be feeling better. Um, I, I also, you know, I had a unique experience cause I had a newborn. So I was on chemo until he was four or four and a half months old. Um, my mother-in-law would come down every three weeks to help us take care of the baby for those like 
first four or five days because I was just so tired and really fatigued in a way that I, I hadn't really experienced before, especially because of my age. Um, that, you know, even just thinking through the things you have to think through as a mom, where you kind of have to be on your game, like being on my game was tiring. Um, and that was something that I, I didn't really anticipate like the brain fogged feeling, the just overall, you know, how emotionally draining it is as well. And what was life like after chemo? So we know that the recovery is sometimes harder than the actual process. Yeah, um, absolutely. So I did uh, 19 treatments of radiation, you know, and that I I knew that radiation was going to be kind of, I I wasn't so worried about it. I thought this will be more easy for me because it was right around the corner. It's a very quick thing. It's, you know, not invasive in the same way, but by this point in my life, I was so done being in a doctor's office and I had begun to kind of, you know, develop this desire to just really never go into a doctor's office again. And this is also when I was finding out, Hey, this is not over. Mm -hmm. So chemo is done. Like your acute treatment, your active treatment is over, but this is something that you're going to be dealing with, you know, pretty seriously for the next five years. And then in some form or fashion for the rest of your life. Um, so I, you know, first of all, had a hard time going every day to radiation and needed to get out of that, that situation and was really glad when I was done and was able to ring the bell and, and know that at least for now I had some space from that <clears throat> in terms of how things have been since then. I have been really trying to focus on, you know, what is, real in terms of how I'm really feeling about just life in general as a working mom with a young kid and a life and kids get sick and you have a boss and things versus the like leftover remnants of the trauma of being diagnosed with cancer while pregnant when your mother died of cancer. You know, it's, it's a huge kick to anyone. We've all, most of us have been affected in some way. And for me, it hit so close to home right as I was starting my own motherhood journey to go through that. So I'm just now really starting to unpack what it means to be like the new normal that I, I am, I I am okay. You know, in a sense, I, I was told in June that I have no evidence of disease, but that doesn't mean that things can't change tomorrow. I have to, continue to try to be vigilant in terms of my health, but also just live life and try to, you know, do that without being so scared. And and that's a hard thing to learn too. So how do you do that? How do you learn to do that? I think that's a lot of, you know, that's something that many, many people struggle with. And sometimes they find themselves very lost in being able to move forward. Well, I'm still on that journey today. So I guess I I don't have um, a lot of good answers, but something that I am trying to do is to continue to see the positive um, that I have now. And one of those things for me is definitely a renewed outlook on life, especially for someone my age. I, I think that 
I've had an opportunity earlier than maybe I would have if not, you know, been faced with my own mortality to say, hey, you know, what, what do I want to spend my time on? When people would say, when I was younger, you know, you can't control what other people think. Um, you, you know, what someone else thinks of you is none of your business. This is legitimately true because someday you could be in an airport and they could call you and say you have cancer. And then whoever was mad at you or whatever fight you were in or your boss saying that like will, will not matter. And um, it was just amazing to watch these things that seemed so important and so just everything in terms of like my career, um, whatever, not be nearly as important once faced with something like that. And it really put life into perspective for me. So that's a positive and I'm trying to remember that. Mm-hmm. But I mean, could it happen again? Yes. Do I hope it doesn't? Yes. I, I, I don't know. You know, it's, that's the thing that's so hard is that everyone's like, oh, wow, good job. You're a survivor. You're done. You had cancer. Well, yeah, that's true. But it, it definitely feels very, doesn't feel over, you, you know, I don't know that it ever really will feel over because I'm always going to wonder when I get a mammogram more so than that girl that, or woman that has never had a diagnosis. I'll always wonder a little bit more and be a little bit more nervous. I'll always have to check that box off. And, um, you know, that's, that's the part that, you know, makes it seem so permanent. And when you get that, you know, the nervousness, the anxiety, that fear, have you come up with ways to manage or cope with that? I'm trying to get back into exercise. I know that well, prior to um, my diagnosis, prior to my pregnancy, I was in really good shape and I was really enjoying like going to the gym and finding that I was able to kind of lose myself with those endorphins. And obviously that was very hard once I, um, you know, went through everything I went through and I'm still not able to, you know, do the things to my full capability that I used to be able to do. But moving my moving my body and being in control of my own body as 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 um kind of basic as that sounds feels really good when at one point I wasn't I felt like I wasn't so doing yoga um doing um more like mindfulness um type uh work and what I mean by that I've I've never been a, a great meditator, but it's something I've always found interesting and something I've, I've always been drawn to. And I've done more of it um, as I've been recovering and being able to notice how many times I go to a different moment other than this moment. How many times what is happening right now is reminding me of that feeling then, even if it's just a smell, even if it's just going to the building. And so, so there's two things. And that, I'm, I, that's interesting that I just remembered that going to the building. So, so part of my continued maintenance is I take a, a hormone pill and I also get a shot every month and I have to go back to the same building every month. And I finally told my oncologist this last time, I, I can't go back to this building anymore. Mm -hmm. I physically just can't. So there's another location, which is closer to my work and that's great. But regardless, it, even if it was farther, 
those, there's those things that just, and I know for me going into that building is a problem and I have, I don't need to work through that. I'm just not going to go to that building. I'm going to go to a different location. <laughs> I, I have to do those things for me. Sometimes I have to separate myself and say, maybe somebody else would like try to work through this, but I have enough stuff to work through. I'm just, I need a moment. I'm going to remove myself from this situation and learning to like be okay with that and give myself permission because I am still recovering, even though I'm a survivor. Mm -hmm. And I think that's a really important point because we know that survivorship starts at the day of diagnosis and it means very many different things to different people. Mm -hmm. And being an, you know, being on treatment or whatever, it doesn't mean that you're not a survivor. I think, you know, anyone living with cancer, you're surviving, you're surviving every single day. Yeah, absolutely. Is there anything else that you would want to share with the listeners, things that you wish you had known when going through cancer treatment or any advice that you would offer to people? Or something I wish I would have paid more attention to, I guess, uh, when I was first diagnosed is really the choices that I guess I had in the beginning. And it's hard to think about, there's so much going on. Um, and they're, they're, your doctor is, is explaining all of these new words to you and these new terms and these new things that you need to focus on. Um, and I luckily, I, I had my husband there with me in my appointments who was able to you know understand really what are the pros and cons to different things we're doing. But I think that I, for myself, just, I, I didn't ask as many questions and I, it, I think it's important to advocate for your own health. Um, maybe I would have made some different decisions. I don't know, but it's important to really understand, you know, what are your options? And if you don't feel comfortable with somebody to go to a different doctor, um, I ended up going with my second option. Um, my particular case was very, you know, a little bit more complicated. And the first surgeon I went and saw was wanting to do my lumpectomy without putting me under. And the second person said, no, that's not safe for the baby. So, you know, it's okay to check out different places. I ended up going radiation to a third place. Like it just kind of depends on, on what works for you or not. Um, so that's something that I, I would urge people um, to do. And that continues all the way through your treatment. You know, mm -hmm. if, if my cold cap had been administered properly, it would not have popped off. Um, I should not have gotten infiltrations on my IV to cause chemical burns. Uh, there was a dose of something that was almost given to me at twice the dosage, but we caught them you know, saying the wrong thing. Oh, you're right. You're right. Well, really? I'm right. Like, good mm -hmm. thing I'm paying attention. So, and it's, and it's not to say, it's not to put down anybody in the medical profession. It's just to say that it's so important just to pay attention and to really try to do your best to, to, you know, fight for yourself too, because it's exhausting. And if you can't do it, find, find a family member or friend that will come with you and sit there with you and just make sure that they're keeping a good eye on you too, because there's, there's a lot of moving pieces in this treatment and getting it all right um, can mean the difference between just being further uncomfortable, you know, and we're already so uncomfortable when we're going through this. I think that's really important. And at the end of the day, you know, your body the best, you know, you have to be your own 
advocate for yourself for in anything that we do, you know, in any life and health and work, you know, whatever it is, we have to advocate for ourselves and not be afraid of doing that. Yeah, absolutely. Um, I've also um, begun to uh, see a a therapist through the uh, university hospital system that I went through, which has been a really great experience also because she understands the unique struggles post cancer in a way that maybe, you know, a psychiatrist or a therapist, you know, just out there in the world wouldn't. And I wouldn't have thought that they would have someone on staff. So I was really glad when they told me that because, and it also made it so much easier for me to manage my meds because I can't keep track. I mean, I can, but it feels like I can't half the time. And, and when someone's saying, Hey, maybe you need to try this or that medication and they know already what you're going through, they know your story. It's, you know, that's been really great too, to, to have just further like support outside of your particular doctor what else is offered by that system that maybe would be helpful to you? I mean, there were free wigs there like once a month, there was all sorts of different things. And I didn't really know about all those programs and I didn't find out about them kind of towards the end. And I wish I would have known about them when I first started, I could have maybe taken advantage of more of them. Yeah. I think that's, you know, there's all these supportive services that are really so critical to your treatment, but you're right. Kind of, they're not as often taken advantage of. Yeah. I mean, in that first moment, I did not want to go anywhere to do anything extra from like, I, I didn't, I wasn't interested mm-hmm. in a support group or in some, you know, whatever event they were doing for October. I've only found myself doing that now. And now I see that there's this vibrant support group out there, whether it's on Instagram, Facebook, in your community, at your you know, hospital system or whatever that mm-hmm. at the time I, I was, whether I was feeling shameful or scared or just quiet, um, I, I didn't take full advantage of then um, that, that I know is out there now. So they're there now and that's great. Um, and I've started to become more active as well and share my story now that I'm kind of and beyond that, you know, speaking with you, I have an Instagram uh, account, Mom Survives, that I have been trying to share more about my story and just um, things that have motivated me in my journey um, to be a part of the positive and the realness of the the um, environment of the Breast Cancer Survivor Network because it's not all about yeah, I'm a survivor. It's like hey, this sucks too, and and that's real, you know, and mm-hmm. that's okay. Mm-hmm. And on that note, where can people follow you if they do want to hear more about what you're going through? Yeah, so uh, I am on Instagram at Mom Survives. Uh, also, I have a website, uh, momsurvives.com, and I'm on Facebook as well. Um, I do uh, write some blog posts and uh, things like that for the website. So I would love um, for anyone that uh, can check it out. Um, And I'm so uh, grateful for you having me on the show today. Well, thank you so much. This was really great. And I think it'll be a wonderful resource to people going through similar experiences or anyone who just wants to hear more about what people go through during cancer treatment. Absolutely. I hope you enjoyed the episode. And as always, if you are loving the show, please take a moment to leave a rating and review over on Apple Podcasts as that is the best way to help me grow the show. 
You can find me on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter at Dr. Toplinsky, as well as on my website, www.interludecancerstories.com. Have a great weekend, and I will see all of you next week.